0: hello again it's chappy your british butler keep calm and cauliflower cheeses back as i said it would be i promised you i wasn't uh, consumed uh, by ravishing piranhas i wasn't squeezed to death by some rather muscified bambi and thumper gymnasts or was i uh, mixed in and blended into a quiche yes James Bond did make a quiche, and we'll be talking about that very, very soon. On Keep Calm and Cauliflower Cheese, your rather carb and whimsical, eccentric podcast is dealing with Bond this week. We had a first part of Bond where we looked at Sean Connery's toupees, um, some of Roger Moore's safari suits, raised eyebrows. How I recommended all of you should go and... Watch on Her Majesty's Secret Service with George Lazenby. A phenomenal James Bond preparing you for No Time to Die. Now, I'm trying to, at the moment, avoid all No Time to Die spoilers. And I feel I've been sucked into a couple of them. Because not every article is putting no spoilers out there. You have to be incredibly careful, people. If you're you're scrolling around Apple News... um, Or, if you're on Twitter, be very, very careful because I have a feeling that they could give something away. Something big in the plot of No Time to Die. And I don't want to... I want to be surprised. I mean, I have a rough guess of what may happen, but I do want to be surprised. But here we are again. It's 126th episode of Keep Carmen Collegiate Cheese. And it's a little bit of a different one today. It's uh, another Bond special... And uh, today we're covering the end of the Roger Moore era in 1985 and we're going right up to the uh, Daniel Craig No Time to Die film that I haven't seen yet but I'm booked in to see on Wednesday and very much looking forward to it, very excited. It's like a new Bond film is like Christmas Eve for me. Um, that's why I think I find it so easy to talk about. Uh, I, I find Bond and Henry VIII very easy to talk about. You know, I, I can get into my Henry the Eighth garb, uh, almost like some sort of Renaissance fair, uh, with my uh, chicken drumstick and uh, rather rotund belly, and uh, feel at ease in the Tudor dynasty. And I feel the same way with Bond. Now, I, I probably wouldn't uh, fit into a Savile Row suit quite nicely as uh, Connery or or uh, Daniel Craig. You know what? I could I could. Handle a double-breasted jacket quite well, you know. I've still got a good, good head of hair. No faceless required. A little bit of a uh, little bit of fat in the cheeks does help when it comes to uh, maintaining uh, youthful good looks. Um, but we may also think about, you know, who should replace Craig as well. I mean, I have my ideas. Other people have their ideas. Um, but it's a debate that'll probably uh, rumble on over the course of the next year or two but I'm uh, incredibly excited about the new movie and I'm very, very excited to talk to you about uh, 1985 onwards, basically. So we had the end of the Roger Moore era. Um, Roger was uh, looking a little bit uh, worn, a little bit too avuncular. Um, He did have the facelift, though. I I don't know if anybody knows this. I think he had a facelift anyway between Octopus in 1983 And 1985, View to a Kill. His his face was very, very unwrinkly, very smooth after after, uh, View to a Kill, during View to a Kill. Uh, But at that point, I mean, he was uh, 58 years old. He was 30 years uh, older than Tanya Roberts. And he did look a little bit like a dirty old man, uh, if we're going to be honest. Uh, Especially when you put him next to Patrick McDee. Uh, from, the, uh, from the Avengers. Now, Tibbet, oh, dear Tibbet in view to a kill, now he looked older than more So, you know, maybe that did help uh, Roger look a little bit younger. But at, at the same point, you know, he'd been playing Bond since 73, the longest serving Bond at that point in time. And it was time to, uh, to hang up the tuxedo, hang up the Walther PPK and holster, and put the safari suit to bed at that point. He wasn't going to come back in uh, The Living Daylights. They decided to choose a young Welshman who had been considered in 1968 or 9 when he was in his early 20s. Timothy Dalton, a classical actor, a classically trained actor to take over the mantle of Bond. And he did so in the, uh, in the 1987 edition of The Living Daylights, which I went to see at the movie theatre. I had to at the time was, uh, was very impressed the only thing that was lacking was a dash of humour let's just quickly talk about quiche before we move on to Tim Dalton let's talk about uh, quiche so you know one last harking back to Roger so Roger Moore in View to Kill for Tony Roberts um, she, he made her Stacey Sutton in the movie a lovely quiche de cabernet now, many people are saying uh, you know, Stacey didn't have very much in her fridge, so you know a few bits of bacon, some eggs. Uh, he, could, you know, he could knock up some pastry. Now, I imagine, uh, I imagine Bond having quite cold hands, so he would be good at making pastry. So he made up the quiche de cabinet, uh, some peppers in there as well, and he brought it to the table, and you know, she obviously very much liked it. But I think it was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek sort of uh, raised eyebrow. One of Roger's last raised eyebrows as Bond to the book that came out in the 80s, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. Now, if James Bond can eat quiche, so can any man. And I think Roger, you know, has a, is a, probably a dab hand of a whisk and he makes a very, very fluffy quiche de cabernet. But why did he describe it as an omelette? Had no American at that time eaten a quiche. I don't know. He described it to Stacey uh, Tanya as an omelette in the movie. But it was a delightful, very, very flaky, crusted quiche. Why don't you try? Real men can truly make and eat quiche. So we had the living daylights with Timothy Dalton, a more brooding uh, look like Bond in many ways, All many people's depiction of Bond, other than William Fleming, as I said in yesterday's podcast, Fleming had more of an English gentleman type of uh, man in, in mind, as in David Niven. Uh, but, I mean, Timothy Dalton had uh, screen testers, he had turned down Bond a couple of times uh, when they were trying to negotiate uh, between uh, some of the Moore films when they thought Roger Moore was going to leave. Dalton did... Uh, did screen test and did turn down the role but in uh, 1987 they had the role lined up for Pierce Brosnan now uh, Pierce Brosnan they first saw uh, the Brom producers Saltzman and Broccoli had seen uh, had seen Pierce Brosnan at uh, quite an sort of opportune time it was during the making of uh, For Your Eyes Only and, uh, and uh, Pierce's first wife, who sadly uh, sadly died of cancer um, literally a dozen years later. She was starring uh, in front of, uh, with Roger Moore as the Countess in, uh, in For Your Eyes Only. And that's the first time that Broccoli uh, Broccoli saw Piers Brosnan. And they, they kept a mental note of it because they wanted Brosnan for the role uh, in Living Daylights, but he was tied into the American TV series Remington Steele at the time, where he was playing sort of Bond Jr. I mean, Brosnan always had the good looks to be Bond uh, and, uh, and probably the chops to play Bond, but he could not play him at that time, so they chose Timothy Dalton. And The Living Daylights. I remember seeing it at the movie theatre. I mean, it was quite a nice spectacle. It was sort of odd in many ways, uh, beautifully set in Vienna. Um, Marion Darbo played the Bond girl. Um, and this is the time of, uh, of uh, the sort of AIDS uh, epidemic. And I don't believe that... I think, I think Timothy was very, very good during the movie. So Timothy Dalton's James Bond in Living Daylights. I don't think he... I think he had sex with one woman. I mean, that was a record at the time. This uh, Bond normally bedded like three or four different women but he was being more responsible in the 1980s and practising safe sex in The Living Daylights. Um, but The Living Daylights was a decent movie, featured Afghanistan. Uh, Joe Don Baker, who played, the, uh, who played the American deranged general, was a bit of a weak villain. But it started Bond as a grittier type of affair. It was much more gritty, less tongue-in-cheek. Dalton didn't want to play Bond... Uh, with a raised eyebrow, with a tongue-in-cheek, any longer. He wanted to go back to the essence of Ian Fleming, you know, being a, a cold-hearted killer, a drinker, uh, no emotion, and just that sort of edge to him that uh, he didn't want to play Bond up as Roger Moore did. So he came with a much harder version of, uh, of Bond, and that's what he brought to the uh, living daylights, and latterly, a license to kill that has an absolutely banging tune, um, Gladys Knight of Gladys Knight and the Pips, um, without the pips on this occasion, she, uh, she gave a rather lovely, soulful um, rendition, but she didn't actually like the tune. She was a pacifist, and she did not like the fact that she was talking about having a license to kill, and she sort of regretted it. And she said she was playing an actress's part and putting on a, putting on a face to, to record... Uh, this tune, and uh, it's a, is a, is a lovely little soulful track, but as I said, Gladys Knight really didn't want to record it, and was talked into it. Licence to Kill was a very violent affair. It was actually rated 15. I think the only Bond film to be rated 15. Uh, really due to two things. Firstly, uh, Bond's old cohort, Felix Leiter, who was wonderfully played by, uh, by David uh, Heatherson uh, who had played uh, Felix Leiter, bonds a CIA buddy uh, in Live and Let Die with, uh, with Roger Moore, who he was good friends with. Um, he, he came back to play Felix Leiter in Licence to Kill, and he ended up having his uh, leg bitten off by a shark, basically, or mauled by a shark. Uh, so that was one reason it was a 15. Uh, and the second reason, it had an essence of sort of uh, drug theme running through it with uh, heroin smuggling, Uh, With Sanchez, Robert Darby played a brilliant villain. Uh, It was an edgy, uncomfortable type of Bond movie, but it was it was a great, a great uh, late 80s Bond movie. I mean, it was blown out of the water with some of the other hits of the uh, day. Uh, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, obviously starring uh, former Bond Connery uh, in uh, playing uh, uh, playing Indiana Jones's dad. So it was blown out of the water in 1989 with all other movies, and many people at that point thought Bond was uh, Bond was past it. I mean, as I said, it was violent; it involves somebody uh, blowing up in a compression chamber. Um, it had the uncomfortable nature of drugs about it. But if you watch it now, that movie has not dated too far, uh, and uh, it is a good, uh, pretty violent uh, type of caper. Um, but one that uh, you should, if, if you like the Daniel Craig movies, this sort of hard-edged Dalton Bond, this second Bond, uh, really, uh, he really came out uh, to play the part in a, in a superb way second time around. And at that time, people thought he would return. But that indeed was, uh, was Dalton's last James Bond effort. So Timothy Dalton had originally set to sign up for three James Bond movies, and the third would have appeared 1990, 1991, maybe 92, 93 time. Um But they, a poster actually went out for the new Timothy Dalton movie at that time, which they thought was going to occur, at the 1990 Cannes Film Festival. Um, at that time, Albert Broccoli, the producer Parted Company, with Richard Maybaum, uh, also the director John Glenn, so he's looking at other directors. And the production for the movie, uh, the new movie that never occurred, was going to start in 1990 in Hong Kong for a release in 1991. It would have featured a terrorist attack on a British nuclear facility in Scotland, threatening to cause World War III. So it was uh, the essence of it was Bond was traveling to East Asia to investigate corrupt businessman Sir Henry Lee, uh, and also uh, with a duel for his Ching, Connie Webb, and also Bond was fighting with his former mentor, Del Hong Crisp. Uh, it would also be featured uh, the Chinese Ministry of State Security as part of that. Uh, and there was a scene of a cyber attack on Scotland uh, and Bond failing in a mission in Libya. And this was the essence of the uh, script. And I mean, Dalton declared, I think, in 2010, they're even talking to directors they are ready to go. But in 1990, MGM was sold for $1.5 billion to Quinex and Australian American Finance Services started making television programs Quinex couldn't provide a 50 million uh, letter of credit so the deal fell apart and the french company called Pathé entertainment uh, quickly moved into buy mdm for 1.2 billion and merged companies to create mdm Pathé communications um, Pathé ceo peretti intended to sell off the distribution rights to the studio's catalog so he could collect advanced payments to finance the buyout and this including uh, the broadcasting rights to 007, leading to Dan Yag, uh, you've made the bomb films for many, many years, uh, to sue. And this was the... Uh, this is what caused the delay. This is why the uh, Chinese-themed uh, World War III um, nuclear facility uh, terrorist attack never happened. The movie never happened with Dalton. And, you know, this went on for about two or three years. And at that point, uh, Dalton stated the delay of the third film ended his contract in 1990. So Piers Brosnan took took the piece. So Piers Brosnan was basically your chocolate box Bond. As I said uh, earlier in the podcast, he had been considered uh, as early as, uh, uh, as For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, um, Living Daylights, he was uh, tied up with remington Steel, but he was finally available to play bond and i don't think in many people's minds i mean you look people have an image of jesus christ middle eastern long with a beard for many people in the, in, the, in the minds eye when they think of bond they think that piers brosnan has the looks of bond if you imagine bond that's what he looks like so Pierce Brosnan, in many minds, is a sort of Jesus Christ of Bonds. Now, there's a controversial (laughs) comment. I don't think he's the best Bond, uh, but he certainly looks like James Bond. He's a chocolate box Bond. He's the milk tray man Bond, as I said uh, on yesterday's podcast. And my mother mother adores him. Goldeneye was a fabulous movie. From uh, bungee jumping off the top of the world's largest dam at the beginning to uh, chase in a train, I mean, you had Sean Bean who had been considered as Bond uh, as well. I mean, I know there was many people who auditioned to be Bond at the time. Uh, uh, I mean, they always had Piers Brosnan in mind. I mean, even Hugh Grant had auditioned to be Bond. Can you imagine? Oh, the, oh, Miss Money, i been an absolute... Oh, do how to say it. Or, um, how can I put this into words, Miss Money, Penny, I've been a, been a very terrible goose, you know. I don't know but just... just seeing me, a boy, you, a girl, standing in front of you saying that I love you. Yeah, I don't know if can't uh, <laughs> would have worked as Bond, but uh, he was considered. But Piers Brosnan, the chocolate box Bond, got the part in a rip-roaring 1995 movie. It, w- it was fantastic. You had a woman who crushed her victims with her thighs. On a top. I mean, c- coming up with one of the classiest names. You had uh, Holly Goodhead, Pussy Galore, but on a top. The Russian agent with a thermos, far- thigh than the whole world. She was the archetypal femme fatale Bond villain. Absolutely a fantastic Bond villain. And then uh, Sean Bean. who was marvelous as a sort of a deranged 006, an agent that had gone wrong that later appeared in, uh, in one of the uh, Daniel Craig movies, uh, Skyfall, uh, in Xavier Badam's uh, role as Silver. But it was a good start to the, uh, to the Brosnan canon. After the success of GoldenEye, Brosnan returned pretty quickly in Tomorrow Never Dies, and he was facing uh, his main antagonist, was the ruthless CEO of Carver Media Group, Elliot Carver, a megalomaniac, uh, media type Rupert Murdoch type of character uh, played by Jonathan Price sort of disappointingly uh, weak uh, and uh, you know didn't have the strength of some of the other Bond villains and yeah he didn't have he didn't have any scars or facial disfigurements or anything along those lines uh, but the movie itself um, you know was not of the same caliber of, uh, of Golden Eye uh, Terry Hatcher played a Bond girl who apparently absolutely detested Piers Brosnan. I mean, she looked the part, fabulous, uh, fabulous Bond girl. Um, but uh, Brosnan has a little bit of the Roger Moore about him. He likes the quips. He liked the quip about uh, touching up on a, on a little bit of Danish and being a cunning linguist. Uh, all of this was uh, was a little bit of uh, a little bit of essence of Roger Moore, and I and I quite appreciate it. You know, and he could put a tan suit on as well. But tomorrow never dies. Uh, was uh, was slightly, slightly disappointing. Uh, but my favourite of the whole Brosnan canon was without a doubt, The World Is Not Enough. The World Is Not Enough was a tremendous film. And people underrate Denise Richards as a Bond girl, playing Dr. Christmas Jones. Now, if anybody's going to play a nuclear scientist, then Denise Richards is your nuclear scientist. Forget boffins. Forget uh, forget James Dyson playing uh, playing a boffin on a Bond movie. Christmas Jones Denise Richards is uh, one of the best, um, and the film itself was a, like sort of a heart back. There's a little bit of Magic the Magic Secret Service. There's a beautiful snowscape chase uh, with Electra King, um, who played the uh, played the played the Bond villain, the antagonist, basically very very well. Uh, with a with a with a guy who felt no pain, a bullet had gone into his head, and he felt no pain at all from this bullet still dislodged in his brain. And it was it was a it was a wonderful sort of nineteen uh, late nineteen nineties uh, type of affair, and Bombed up against a female Bond villain who had his match for most of the movie, and. Denise Richards as a nuclear scientist. I mean, with all those elements in there and a huge, like, uh, foam golf ball saving Bond and Electra from an avalanche, you have, yourself, a perfect James Bond movie. Oh, Die Another Day, with its bad CGI effects of Bond coming out of an ocean and on a wall with a parachute attached to him tumbling to the top of a cliff yeah it was a bad one um it was not good there was a north korea connection to it um there was a decent decent enough storyline uh many people said madonna ruined the whole uh, ruined the whole uh, event i i said she actually put one of the best uh one of the best bond tracks out there die another day there was a it was a fabulous sort of uh crunchy type of uh, James Bond number let's just say that Madonna was really not fabulous as Bond's fencing instructor and as much as I love Toby Stevens as an actor he really didn't uh, really didn't come up to par as Gustav graves who basically gone under some gene therapy he basically went from Kim jong-un uh, to a public schoolboy Gustav Graves so it was a ridiculous plot from the beginning. Um, it was a it was a long movie. It had bad CGI. Brosnan uh, probably wasn't in his best shape at that point. I mean, compared to compared to my dear self here, I mean he was uh, positively Adonis. But uh, I don't know. He had, he had looked a bit more tired, a little bit more rotund in the role. I didn't like the, uh, the ZZ Top long beard at the beginning. You know, my feeling about beards, shave the buggers off. But that's how the movie started uh, with Bond captured and uh, being tortured with scorpions in a North Korean jail. Anyway, it's a little bit too far. And then you had the invisible Aston Martin. So we like to skip around on the podcast a little bit here. Uh, but let's talk about Bond and turtlenecks. You know, love the safari suit. Uh, love, a, love a cravat, love an ascot, love a tuxedo, especially the white jacket tuxedo that you had, uh, especially in Spectre and also in Octopussy as well. But uh, Bond loves, uh, loves a turtleneck. Turtlenecks never got a style. I know people say that they do. But you have the Bond movies post of Spectre. It was sort of based uh, and edged around the classic Roger Moore turtleneck in uh, Live and Let Die with the holster. Um but there's another awesome thing about Bond, and there we, go, there I go with the word awesome again. The sweet turtleneck. Turtlenecks are a great, great way to add some elegance to your outfit. When it comes to feeling the expected shirt and tie combo, you can have it under the sports jacket. You can have it under a blazer. Uh, in you know Moonraker, Roger Moore had a white turtleneck and with a blue blazer. Any higher, Mr. Bond, and my ears will pop. You know, so it's all of that. So you had Connery and You Only Live Twice with a grey turtleneck. He had the exploding cigarette there. Roger Moore, Live and Let Die, uh, with the uh, classic uh, the classic black turtleneck. And then Piers brother had a chunky sort of cable knit turtleneck and Die Another Day. And he, I mean, he looked fabulous as well. Uh, and then obviously uh, uh, Daniel Craig, chiseled, toned. Uh, in a black turtleneck in Spectre as well. I would add a turtleneck to your full collection, uh, ladies and mantelpieces. So Casino Royale marked the beginning of a new era for the James Bond film franchise. You had director Martin Campbell introduce Daniel Craig as a refreshingly rough-around-the-edges version of Double Seven. It was an alternative universe. But there was an even more unconventional take on the Fleming classic. Before Casino Royale went into production, the ever eccentric Quentin Tarantino expressed an interest in directing an adaptation of the story starring Pierce Brosnan. And he said in a 19, uh, sorry, 2004 interview with the BBC, I've always wanted to do it. I bumped into Pierce Brosnan. We talked about it. He liked the idea. I would like to do the original Casino Royale and do it uh, or less in the way that Ian Fleming uh, wanted it to be. Quentin Tarantino's claim producers told him his vision was unfilmable, but almost immediately revisited the idea a Casino Royale adaptation without his involvement once the director's comments about the potential uh, project sparked much public interest. For years, Tarantino refused to see the film, having felt backstabbed by Ian Productions. I never saw Casino Royale I was so mad at those guys. It's hard to imagine how vulgar and violent James Bond would have been through the Tarantino lens. But not a lot of people know that. But a Brosnan take on Casino Royale with Tarantino would have certainly been a very eye-opening affair. So many uh, different actors uh, basically were given a chance to audition for Bond before Casino Royale came out. Piers Brosnan had been pushed aside and they were looking for a younger, more vibrant type of Bond. Take it back to that sort of realistic element that uh, Fleming had envisaged that Timothy Dalton portrayed to some degree, away from the more chocolate box, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek Roger Moore-esque Piers and Bond. So they um, basically auditioned a number of different, uh, uh, different people, I mean, from uh, Dugray Scott uh, to Henry Cavill, who I still think... Would make a fabulous Bond. Uh, But they they turned and they decided to uh, go with Piers Brosnan. Barbara Broccoli, uh, Cubby Broccoli's daughter, had seen uh, uh, Daniel Craig in uh, an Elizabeth movie, more of a sort of period piece, and thought that the way he moved and uh, the essence of Bond was captured in Craig. Uh, He was Bond. Before that, I mean, Bond had mostly been dark-haired. Roger Moore had that sort of sandy-coloured hair. But blonde and blue eyes was Craig. And when he was chosen, um, I think he was actually in Whole Foods at the time and decided to go drinking afterwards. Martinis. martinis. Um, he was panned. Uh, the, the critics panned the idea of bland Bond, blonde Bond. All of this was written about him. That he wasn't a fit, he took a speedboat along the River Thames to the press conference when he was going to be revealed as the next Bond, and he had to wear a life jacket. S- rules, safety rules. He had to wear the life jacket, but the press said he was wimpy. He needed a life jacket. Bond would not need a life jacket. He needed to wear a life jacket because it was the rules, you know, in a in a police boat along the River Thames, and everybody was, uh, you know, very concerned that he wasn't going to be a fit. He wasn't going to be a great Bond uh martin campbell came back as director as i mentioned he had uh, directed the new uh a new bond before as in pierce brosnan in in uh, goldeneye so incapable hands and they put together uh a sort of film noir similar in some ways maybe to how less violent the way tarantino envisaged it but you had a 38 year old bond who looked young Uh, very sort of fit and a fabulous storyline based completely around the fleming novel eva green was a uh, sort of sultry femme fatale bond girl um, who had a, a another side a sort of alter ego and was magnificent as bond's love interest Probably the best love interest for Bond since Diana Rigg in *On a Majesty's Secret Service*, but you had a, a marvelous casino scene. Um, you had you had some gadgets. It was stripped down. It was it was a, like a, a neater type of uh, old-fashioned, but in the same way, very modern type of affair. The cinematography was uh, out of this world. It was marvelous. And then, for the ladies, you had. Daniel Craig and his six-pack stepping out of the ocean in those blue swimming trunks that for the second day in a row I am wearing. Many see Casino Royale as a as a fabulous, maybe the best Bond movie out there. And I re-watched it the other night. From the very beginning, it was shot in black and white to the uh, sweeping scenes along the Italian coastline. Bond's torture scene being... Uh, belted in the balls, not by cricket balls, as in like a Midsummer Murders episode, but it was uh, a knotted rope being slung into uh, his cojones, into the crown jewels, so to speak. Um, and that really was on Your Majesty's Secret Service, you know what I'm saying. But it was, I mean, I talked about this before, and I guess it's an overused word, seminal bomb movie. You had the Aston Martin DB5, and then, straight after, you had Quantum of Solace. Now, if you watch Quantum of Solace as a separate movie, and there's a writer's strike on, the script is all over the place. I mean, Daniel Craig even wrote some of the script for Quantum of Solace. But if you watch it on it separately, it makes no sense, and and it's not a, a particularly memorable movie. If you watch it straight after Casino Royale, which I did the other day, It makes complete sense. The the wonderful car chase through the tunnel in the Aston Martin is a wonderful start to the movie with Mr. White in the back of the car. But you need to watch it straight after Casino Royale. Now, Dominic Green, as the leader of Quantum, another disappointing Bond villain. But watch it straight after Casino Royale if you have the stamina to do it and you would appreciate quantum and solace much much more the two sam mendes films skyfall and specter have a sort of huge contrast amongst uh, bond critics and film uh, filmgoers across the whole of the world i mean specter is is uh, criticized as a sort of bloated edition of the the bond movie i want to stand corrected on that i think uh, i think specter is an excellent movie but skyfall uh, was one of those movies that you see. It, was, it had sort of epic proportions about it. I mean, the Bond villains make such a difference. Javier Badama Silva was a disturbed sort of megalomaniac who'd worked for MI6 back in the day and had a, a menace about him that, uh, that a lot of the Bond villains haven't had. He was, he was a fabulous Bond villain in Skyfall. And then the backstory of uh, Judy Dench's last movie as M was, uh, was a tragic story. Taking Bond to Scotland. The image, again, the, the cinematography in Skyfall and across the Daniel Craig movies as a whole were tremendous. Bond in a DB5 driving from London and he stops in the Scottish Highlands across a misty moor a babbling brook and that iconic image of Emin Bond talking whilst looking over the scene of the countryside near his old childhood home of Skyfall really sticks in the mind. I mean, that would make a great poster, a great still. And then the end of it, the, the, the sort of Javier Badam's uh, henchmen and, and the baddies come along in a helicopter to Skyfall and it's Bond, M, and also the Gamekeeper battling it out against uh, new-age weapons. Is this a little bit of the A-team about it? With B. A. Barakas making a machine gun out of a, uh, a, a out of a potato machine? That's that's how it felt, but it was wondrous, iconic. Bond in his barber jacket practicing shooting. I mean, there's so many small elements to to that Bond movie that stand out in the mind and make it uh, magnificent. You had Casino Royale that was pushing back the boundaries. It felt like a 1960s sort of pastiche about it. But Skyfall felt modern. It felt sort of vulnerable, bond-showing emotions. It, uh, it was an epic movie, as I said, with a very, very epic soundtrack. And the lovely songstress Adele Really singing one of her best tracks. Mm-hmm. So then we come to Spectre. And I think Spectre, just excuse the pun, has, has a sort of that shadowy Spectre across the whole of the Bond series that echoes the sort of former age of Bond villains with Blofeld coming back into the fray as Bond's long-lost stepbrother. I mean, it was, a, it was a sort of convoluted plot in many ways. And Mendes, in his second uh, directorship of a bomb movie, uh, really tried to throw the kitchen sink into the movie. Everything went into this. Some of the iconic elements of the former bomb movies went into Spectre. Um, and in my mind, I love that part of it. In other people's minds, such as my good friend and cohort, occasional co-host from the show, Uncle Jim, he hated it. He felt too much was being thrown into it. But I love the train scene, the white jacket uh, with uh, with Lea Seydoux, Madeline Swan's character. And I love Blofeld. I don't think Christopher Waltz, uh, Christoph Waltz, as Blofeld was the right uh, was the right Blowfeld, in my opinion. I mean, Telly Savalas was the iconic Blowfeld. Um, but Christoph Waltz, I mean, he's a great actor. Watching *Glorious Bastards*, if you're thinking Tarantino. He was marvellous in that movie, but he didn't. He wasn't the right character. He wasn't menacing enough. So remind me, he wasn't as camp as Charles Gray in Diamonds Are Forever. But there was acts of the campness about it. This it wasn't wasn't quite there. It's a good idea bringing back Um and then the sort of subplots weren't great as well. But again, visually, Spectre was an amazing uh, an amazing movie. And I think it's set up No Time to Die. People are saying this will probably bring down No Time to Die because you have to follow what happened in Spectre. I think it only adds to it because bringing Black Blofeld and, uh, it, you know, Inspector was, I think in script writing wise, a genius idea. But people are concerned that the new movie uh, may harken back to a movie that wasn't that popular. It was a good movie. It had uh, it had everything thrown into it. All the Bond, the, the iconic Bond elements were thrown into Spectre to make it uh, feel a little bit bloated and overstuffed, maybe at times. But uh, it's a tremendous movie, and it and it's got me incredibly excited for the next one. So as I said, I'm trying to keep away from all social media elements in No Time to Die. You know, I watched all the stuff about the premiere the other day. Uh, Princess Kate. The Duchess of Cambridge looking marvelous in that gold. I mean, she looked like uh, she could have been in Goldfinger with that gold sparkling uh, frock that she had on. Daniel Craig in his pink jacket. Many people saying he's a little bit too pink to be wearing a pink jacket. Good on you, Daniel, with the pink jacket. Although it did look a little bit Austin Powers from The Spy Who Shagged Me, in my mind. But, uh, I mean, it's got me very excited for this Wednesday. I don't think anybody's going to be, I, I mean, I think people think I'm crazy. Uh, my dearest love you know, thinks I'm absolutely crazy, I think, being this excited about a bomb movie. Um, but you know what, as I said, as I said at the top of the show, it's like Christmas Eve for me. So I want to keep away from the spoilers. I'm hoping it's going to be a bit like Humanity Secret Service. A lot of vulnerability, a lot of emotion, beautiful cinematography. I already know that it has that. I've seen uh, seen enough of it. Um, Being Bond is, is is a great Daniel Craig sort of uh, little motif and documentary about the Daniel Craig years, filmed by a, a friend of his. So it's quite a, a little bit more intimate than some of the interviews I've seen with Daniel Craig. But I will be see, sad to see Craig go. I think he's... Uh, I think he could have got a few more Bond movies in there along the way. I think he was getting tired at the time of Spectre, but he's reshaped it and sort of multifaceted from a brutal sort of uh, killer in Casino Royale and uh, and uh, Quantum of Solace uh, to showing all the emotion in Skyfall, a little bit more humour injected into Spectre with some of the older characters coming back, and then No Time to Die uh is is sort of going to be his opus maybe i'm hoping so i'm as i said trying to keep away from the spoilers but there we go this has been keep calm and cauliflower cheese the special bond edition and you're very welcome to it how would you rate your favorite james bonds i saw a tally today that put daniel Craig top sean connery Timothy Dalton is number three. Would you put Timothy Dalton as number three? I would put Conor in more at the top with, uh, with Daniel Craig maybe after that. I put Lazenby above Dalton. Brosnan needs to be looked at a little bit more. He's been criticized recently for his portrayal as Bond, which, you know, look at Golden Iron World is not enough. Two fabulous movies. But if you look in terms of essence of movies, Casino Royale, Link it to Quantum of Solace, or the first part of Quantum of Solace. Those two together uh, were unbelievably good. And then you have Skyfall and Spectre together. as the Mendes movies. Again, certainly not. Uh, certainly not criticise them. And then to close off the last chapter, No Time to Die. What are we going to be expecting with no time to die? I tell you something. It it will be unwrapping that sort of unknown Christmas present on Christmas morning. For a Bond fan, that's the best, simply the best. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. Keep coming, Cauliflower Cheese, Bond special number two. And uh, it's been delightful to talk about one of my favourite subjects. I mean, many people say, oh, Bob's your favourite subject is yourself. No, 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 no. Bond is up there. Food is up there. Henry VIII is up there. Dogs. <laughs> There's many music. But Bond is definitely one of my specialist subjects. Whereas on Mastermind, I think i do rather well. Uh, but you can listen to the show across all of the platforms, from Apple Music to Spotify. There's, again, a musical important Butler edition with some of the Bond movie favourites from The Living Daylights to... Uh, Sam Smith writing on the wall and No Time to Die Billie Eilish. What do you think of that movie? That's a sort of sullen cinematic brilliance to it with the Billie Eilish tune. But uh, coming up next, we do have a Bond influence poem to close proceedings. I think if you were to describe Bond to a child, you might read them this poem here to end the program. My name's Bond, James Bond. I drive an Aston Martin, I carry a wealth of PPK, I crash cars, I bash bars, I splash stars, I catch chicks choices to picks. I have my tricks, I am Bond, fond of blonde, I wave my wand and they cannot look beyond, I have the license to kill, the license to thrill, I have the license to fulfill, and hopefully I fulfilled your Bond lust over these last two podcasts we keep coming cauliflower cheese two bond editions i'll be back with the normal type of podcast affair next week uh it's chappy out for now and go out there go and watch the bond movie it needs to it, it, it need it to save the movie theaters out there and i think it will but until then cheerio for now